What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. On December 2, 2015, a 52-year-old Bavarian man boarded a plane to Thailand. The man intended to spend his vacation having sex with various women. While he was away, neighbors became increasingly concerned about the whereabouts of the man's wife. They didn't know it yet, but two days before his trip, the man had viciously murdered his wife, bludgeoning her to death while she slept. I can think of few more depraved acts than dispatching someone with a hammer after you've climbed into bed with them. And after killing his wife, he chopped up her body, packed the pieces in four large boxes, and then stashed them in a storage unit. To actually dismember a body 12 hours after death without that detailed knowledge of anatomy would be a very difficult task. This domestic homicide was not done in the heat of the moment. It was a cold and calculated murder. When we look at cases like the Krona case, it's just the extreme end of the wedge. It's the tip of the iceberg. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Horst Kroner. Horst Kroner was born in 1963 in the small town of Friedberg in Bavaria, Germany. Kroner had a self-described miserable childhood and would go on to blame this for all his troubles in life. There's not a lot of information about his upbringing, but criminologist Stephen Harbert and journalist Jeffrey Wansel have some insight. He said, yes, obviously I had parents, but in a narrower sense, I have never received love. And what bothered me most was that in my parents' home, I basically did not receive any recognition. I was a human being too, but I had the feeling that I was not counted as such. What is clear, however, is that Kroner from a very early age felt the world was against him. Oh, I was so miserable. Um, I was suicidal. My life was a misery. Journalist George Heinzel, who reported on Kroner's case, says that growing up, his parents were typically absent. He talked about himself, that he got little from his parents. They were both at work. They both worked a lot, and therefore he spent the majority of his time as a child with his grandmother and was brought up by his grandmother. His unhappy childhood resulted in low self-esteem, and he became an outsider from society. Kroner took a job working as an IT technician, but he was growing more and more unhappy with his life. Horst Kroner says that every so often he had suicidal thoughts because he believed he could not survive in everyday social life. He was always stressed, he said. 
This is to some extent understandable. He had changed his place of work a total of 10 times. He sometimes felt bullied at work, but sometimes he resigned out of his own free will. Essentially, he led an unsettled life for a very long time. Kroner struggled to meet women in person and turned to the internet and other forms of media as a way to find a partner. He had met his wives through a dating agency, newspaper adverts, or, in the last case, on the internet. He clearly did not have the confidence to approach a woman at a party or maybe in a supermarket or through other opportunities. I assumed that this man indeed had problems with women. Kroner was married twice before meeting his third wife, all of whom were from Southeast Asia. That suggests to me that, that he's targeting a particular group of women from particular cultures where they have a more traditional idea of, of femininity and masculinity, uh, women who, who take that traditional nurturer, caregiver role, that he is going to find easier to, to be in control of. When he was 42, Kroner met 27-year-old Grace on the internet. Grace was from the Philippines, and after moving to Germany, she married Kroner in March 2005. Grace embraced her new life in Bavaria. She learned to speak German and immersed herself in the small town of Friedberg. She worked as a shop assistant in a supermarket, mainly at the meat counter. And she actually had a good relationship with all her colleagues. She was described as nice, friendly, helpful, very sociable, and was very much liked there. It seemed as though the couple was settling into a happily married life. Both strangers and acquaintances had the impression that they had a happy marriage and were both very content with their situation. But all was not as it seemed. Over time, however, more and more problems accumulated. But neither Horst nor Grace were able to admit to the problems to discuss them and find solutions. In an attempt to combat the problems at home, Grace became a Jehovah's Witness and persuaded her husband to come to church meetings. I think perhaps because it gave her a family, a, a place to have stable relationships. She knew she was married to a cold, calculating man. She'd realized that. Horst Kroner often displayed extreme mood swings. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that this was likely a result of Kroner being a narcissist. Narcissists can swing between two extremes. They swing between seeing themselves as, as worthless and then thinking they're really special at the same time. So they have a sense of entitlement, they, they think that they're better than everybody else, but that underneath it all they're fundamentally ashamed of, of who they are. So, so it's this constant state of conflict with them. More problems developed for Grace in the relationship. Although he was married, Horst Kroner was determined to have sex with other women. He feels that he should have his cake and eat it. He feels that he should have Grace at home, looking after his needs, doing his laundry, putting dinner on the table. But at the same time, he wants to be engaging in sexual encounters with other women. He said that basically, he led a kind of double life. On the one hand, he was a member of Jehovah's Witnesses. On the other hand, this double life, where he was unfaithful to his wife and searched the internet for acquaintances and new adventures. 
The stress of Kroner's infidelity took a toll on their marriage. He had reasoned that whenever he had problems or felt stressed, professionally, privately, when things weren't going well, he would withdraw and busy himself more with the internet, with exchanging online chats. And he was always in search of women, Asian women who lived in Thailand, and these acquaintances resulted in his desire to meet these women in person. On top of his double life, Kroner developed financial problems over the years. His previous marriages resulted in children, and he was constantly struggling to pay child support that he owed his two former wives. He was spending money quite unsparingly and was then so short of cash that once he had to file for bankruptcy. In 2007, Kroner decided to satisfy his growing sexual urges and booked a flight to Thailand. It was the first trip he would take to cheat on his wife. The second time that he flew to Thailand again was in 2013. The deceitful thing about this flight was that Grace at the time had flown back to her home in the Philippines because her mother had died and was to be buried there. And he used that time to fly to Thailand for a sex holiday. Kroner's defense lawyer, Baron Scheringer, talks more about Kroner's mindset at the time of his second trip. He once said that his favorite time was 2013, when he had such a trip to Thailand. And that's why he wanted to do it once more before ending his life. He wanted to have a nice time again and then to kill himself as the final act. By 2013, Grace had discovered that Kroner had formed several relationships with women on the internet. Then in the fall of 2015, Kroner planned another solo sex trip to Thailand. But this time, Grace confronted him about it. The strain of her husband's infidelity was just too much to bear, and Grace threatened to leave Kroner. This pushed him over the edge. If Grace had done what she had threatened, if you go one more time to Thailand to have sex with other women, then I will file for a divorce, that would have been the financial ruin of Horst Kroner. And he would have no longer been able to pursue his pastime of having sex with Thai women. He had already gone through bankruptcy. He was on the brink of financial ruin which was already, for someone with a narcissistic disposition like him, a very solid reason to come up with an extreme solution. Either her or me. His brilliant plan? Murder his wife, dispose of her body, then fly to Thailand to have sex. Many people will look at this case and say, well, why didn't he simply just ask for a divorce? And, and the, the simple reason is that when you ask for a divorce, your control over that situation is dissolved a little bit. And here we've got an individual who likes to be fully in control of, of everything that's going on around him, especially the woman in his life. So by taking matters into his own hands, he's fully in control, he's 100% in the driving seat, and, and nobody else is going to be interfering with that. He saw women as objects. He saw them simply as trophies, objects that could be dispensed with. The same was his attitude to sex tourism. He would make arrangements to visit 
Thailand, make appointments and say, oh, this is the woman who's going to fulfill my fantasies. Kroner booked his trip to Thailand for December 2nd, using Grace's money to buy the tickets. The fact that he made these withdrawals from his wife's account and that she could possibly see the account statements the following Monday meant on that weekend on which the act happened was the signal for the beginning. The decision was made to commit the act. The final trigger, the final tripwire was actually booking a hotel room in Thailand because he knew that his wife would discover that he'd done that the following day. It was that that provided the timeline for the killing. With the tickets booked, Kroner believed there was no backing down from his murderous plan. In 2015, Horst Kroner, a 52-year-old Bavarian IT tech, had hatched a plan to kill his wife so he could fly to Thailand to have sex with other women. His wife Grace had confronted Kroner about his infidelity and was threatening to divorce him if he cheated again. Kroner believed that the only way to continue satisfying his sexual urges was to kill his wife, and he developed what he thought was a foolproof plan to get away with it. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Kroner's level of intelligence played a part in his confidence. I think that the fact he has a high IQ and he's an intelligent man is significant in relation to this crime. He's going to be thinking through the process more. He's going to be trying to, to cover up. He's going to be thinking about all of those things that could potentially trip up somebody who wasn't as intelligent. Kroner knew that to get away with murder, he needed to ensure that the body would not be discovered. Criminologist Stephen Harbert says Kroner did in-depth research on how he could do this. After Horst Kroner had decided to kill his wife, he searched the internet looking for possibilities, for an airtight way to pack the corpse so the body wouldn't start to smell. He wanted to know how to kill his wife, so he made related searches. He wanted to kill her as quickly and as painlessly as possible. He looked up, if I cut up her body, which I will have to do if I kill her in our apartment, where can I dispose of the body? Kroner compiled an unsettling to-do list to carry out his plan. First, he bought a five-pound hammer and some duct tape. After bringing it home, journalist George Heinzel says Kroner hid the hammer in a dining room cabinet for easy access. He didn't have a weapon readily available in the basement, as in cases where spontaneous murders happen. Instead, he had bought one specifically from the hardware store. He had also searched and read information on the internet on the subject of storage rental. He didn't buy everything in advance. Some things he only bought right after the murder took place. On Monday, November 30th, 2015, Kroner was ready to take action. To ensure that Grace was asleep, Kroner waited until the early hours of the morning. Then he took the hammer out of the dining room cabinet, walked into their bedroom, and hit Grace over the head as hard as he could 
six times. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel and forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton both say that the method Kroner used to kill Grace was brutal. I can think of few more depraved acts than dispatching someone with a hammer after you've climbed into bed with them. But nevertheless, Kroner did exactly that. What we have to hope is that that first blow would leave her unconscious. But if you are intending to murder somebody, then repeated blows, essentially, you're making sure of the job. Even after the repeated blows to her head, Grace appeared to still be moving. You sometimes get these muscular spasms, even when somebody's just died, because as the electrical impulses are just starting to fail, they will spark off little nerve fibers, spark off muscular twitches. So it can just be the effect of the brain dying. To ensure she was dead, Kroner got a trash bag and put it over Grace's head before wrapping duct tape around her neck. Then he grabbed a pillow and suffocated her. Examiners later determined he did this for 15 to 20 minutes. Former criminal psychologist Chris Carter gives some insight as to why Kroner used so many methods to carry out the murder. In his case, he did three types of murders. You know, he was blunt force, then suffocation with, with a plastic, and then suffocation with, with a pillow. People will go through different emotions, especially when you, when you plan a crime like that, and then you think you can go ahead with it, and sometimes people get overwhelmed by different emotions. And then they will do things they are like unnatural. They'll carry on doing things. That's why some people do the overkill. After he was sure his wife was dead, Kroner began the next phase of his plan, disposing of Grace's body. The morning after the murder, Kroner left the house and went to a local hardware store to buy the supplies he needed for the horrific task. He went out and bought materials that he needed, including a saw, including plastic storage boxes, including building foam, including salt. He returned home and wrapped Grace's lifeless body in a blanket before dragging it into the rug in the bedroom. He grabbed a tub he bought at the hardware store, brought it into the bedroom, and carefully covered the room with plastic sheets. The tub was to hold Grace's body. In his research, Kroner had come to the conclusion that the best time to cut up a body was 12 hours after death. To actually dismember a body 12 hours after death without that detailed knowledge of anatomy would be a very difficult task. I think that there is an element in, in which he, he feels this is a challenge that he's going to rise to, that he's going to do well. So this is, is somebody who, who is, is treating it almost like a project, and, and that is incredibly cold and incredibly chilling. Kroner cut his wife's body into eight pieces with the saw. He placed each part of the corpse into a large plastic bag. Then he added salt to the bags with the intention of slowing down the decomposition of the body. The way to prevent decomposition, if you were preserving meat, so salt would slow down the process, it would desiccate the tissues, keeping it cold would slow down the rate of decomposition. And these things will 
slow the process, but by no means prevent it completely. Kroner placed the bags, tools, rug, and bed linens into four plastic bins. Then, to mask the smell, he filled the bins with construction foam before closing them. He hoped this would be enough to prevent anyone from discovering his atrocious crime. Kroner then drove the boxes of his wife's dismembered body to a self-storage unit in Friedberg. He said himself that he was quite nervous, not that it was outwardly noticeable looking at him. He then described that whilst unloading the boxes, one box had fallen on the floor and had almost opened. But the box didn't open. And it appeared Horst Kroner had successfully murdered his wife and hidden her remains. Now he was finally free to travel to Thailand to satisfy his carnal appetites. He just wanted his holiday. And for that holiday, he didn't care. He had to kill her, chop her up, put her inside a box, fill the box with foam, and then try to hide the box somewhere. He, he did not care what he had to do. So it's a complete lack of emotion towards somebody that he actually shared a life with. And to me, that is it's the worst type of psychopath you can, you can have. There are an awful lot of men who kill their wives and then seek to take a terrible revenge on the body. Not always going to the lengths that Kroner went to of meticulously cutting it up and storing it in plastic boxes that didn't smell, but the level of rage and the level of anger that killing your wife means is very, very difficult to quantify from the outside. It's beyond most people's wildest imaginings. It is a problem all over the world that there will be women everywhere losing their lives at the hands of their partner or their ex-partner. So when we look at cases like the Krona case, it's just the extreme end of the wedge. It's the tip of the iceberg. The next day, Kroner went to work covering his tracks. Defense lawyer Baron Scheringer says Kroner had come up with reasons why he and Grace would be gone. There was, of course, the fact that they had requested leave from their respective employers because they wanted to go on holiday together to the Philippines. And he had also laid false tracks. When he dropped a note to the neighbors, he wrote that Grace had left him and he was now flying after her to see what was left of their marriage to save. And he would get in touch again. Then on December 2, 2015, just two days after he murdered his wife, Kroner boarded a plane to Thailand. He spent most of the time in Pattaya, which is a known place for sex tourism. And there, he met with several women, including one he had already contacted over the internet, and he admitted himself that he also had had sex with these women. Back home in the small town of Friedberg, no one suspected anything nefarious had taken place, at first. There were already different false tracks laid, so that only after Mrs. Kroner's holiday ended did her colleagues from work start to get worried, as well as members of their church congregation who questioned why they had not turned up. People then tried to make contact but were unsuccessful. When Grace, who was known for being reliable, didn't show up for work or her regular church services, suspicions grew. Finally, just before Christmas in December 2015, and nearly a month after being murdered by her husband, a concerned friend reported Grace missing to the local police. 
immediately, things didn't add up with the story Kroner had given his neighbors. Actually, at the beginning of the inquiries, there was no evidence that Grace had indeed traveled. People had also contacted her family. She wasn't there, and nobody knew of a holiday trip or a visit home, and so it became ever more apparent that she had practically disappeared without a trace. Police conducted a search of Horst and Grace Kroner's apartment, but there was nothing to suggest foul play, and there were no clues as to where the couple had disappeared to. After the act, he tidied up and cleaned up everything very thoroughly. He put the rug on which he cut up the body on the balcony, rolled up. But nobody noticed that at first. However, a small blood splatter was found in the bedroom, but no one knew that a murder had taken place. Police carried on the investigation and discovered that Horst Kroner only booked a ticket for himself alone to Thailand. They were certain Grace had not traveled with him and that the story Kroner had given the neighbors was a lie. Kroner became the prime suspect in the disappearance of his wife, Grace. But with no body, the case was completely circumstantial. Well, it is almost the classic question, whether it's murder fact or murder fiction, isn't it? Uh, who's the first person you're likely to die at the hands of? It's almost certainly to be your husband. That's why most murderers uh, know their victims and most victims know their murderers. Um, probably the most likely victim of all is a wife and the most likely killer of all is a husband. Then on January 8th, 2016, Horst Kroner returned to Germany. He was arrested the following day. Kroner didn't put up a fight and immediately confessed to his crime. He also led police to the storage unit where they recovered Grace's body. Most people are quite surprised to hear that as soon as he's apprehended, he completely spills the beans, he tells the police everything. But that doesn't surprise me at all because he's aware, okay, I've been caught, so I'm in a situation now which is largely out of my control. So to get some of that control back, I'm going to be the one who sets the narrative. I'm going to be the one that decides what happens. So in confessing everything, he has that feeling of being in control again. On October 25, 2016, the trial of 53-year-old Horst Kroner began at the courthouse in Augsburg, Germany. Kroner was being tried for the vicious murder of his wife, Grace, whom he had bludgeoned to death before cutting up her body and placing it in several plastic bins he left in a storage unit. George Heinzel was one of the journalists who closely followed the trial. The interest in this case was naturally huge. There were various media involved, lots of reporters who wanted to follow the process. Because of the crime scene, the dismemberment and the storing of the body alone meant that this case was indeed out of the ordinary. Baron Scheringer was the lawyer who represented Kroner during the trial. I had made the request that the court make sure that initially, in the context of the trial, he would be pixelated, which most of the media adhered to. Along with pixelating his face, Kroner had decided on a bizarre defense strategy. He intended to claim he was the victim in this case. 
Criminologist Stefan Harburg believes this was a last-ditch effort for Kroner. The story that he told in court, in my view, is actually more of a late defense claim. I do think that the murder of his wife was planned and also executed in cold blood, and that his suicidal thoughts at that point were certainly not acute, because what would have actually kept him from putting those thoughts into action? Even if it sounds very, very strange, I think he actually had it in him. He also said that the decision to murder his wife was made on that night when he grabbed the hammer. In other words, only after the first blow of the hammer did the intent to kill manifest itself. According to him. Here is someone trying to conceal his serious guilt so as not to be seen as a monster. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley has some more insight into Kroner's thought process. He's almost presenting Grace's murder as something that he's done for her own good, um, which, which is incredulous. Um, but, but when you look at the, the, the logic and the decision-making of somebody like Kroner, he's always going to want to present himself as the victim and present himself in a favorable light. You can see how he gets to, to the point it's all to protect himself. The trial captivated both Friedberg and the entire nation of Germany. People were shocked that the man on trial could be capable of such a horrendous crime. He didn't give an impression of coldness. He was rather reserved and subdued. But he had answered the questions and also tried to clarify how things came to that point. He was quite open about it. He was also emotional the whole time, to the extent that it was said, one cannot imagine that there is a case being handled where he is the brutal murderer. He had been labeled with three characteristics, a lack of motivation because he had such low morals. He himself admitted that he wanted once more to go to Thailand, to have a good time, and they suggested that this was his motivation to murder, in order to be able to have a good time in Thailand. Then he was accused of greed, because he had stolen money from his wife's account, and of course, insidiousness, because he had killed her in her sleep. Because he'd confessed to the crime, the question wasn't whether he was guilty, but how long Kroner would serve for the brutal murder of his wife. If found guilty, Kroner would serve life imprisonment with a 15-year minimum before he could be considered for parole. Supported by a wealth of evidence and a confession, journalist Jeffrey Wansel says prosecutors presented a strong case for cold-blooded murder. When Kroner eventually comes to trial, he has confessed to the killings, so there is no question of proving his guilt. There is simply a question of how he will be treated. Is he sane? Yes. Did he plan it? Yes. Did he kill his wife when she was asleep and defenseless? Yes. Uh, did he then dismember her body? Yes. Did he then conceal the body parts in storage boxes? Yes. Quite often in German law, uh, you can be considered for release for a life sentence after 15 years. But Kroner continued to play the victim during the trial. Actually, the reasons he gave as to why he came up with the idea that he had to kill his wife were not really comprehensible. He always said that he actually wanted to kill himself 
because he had so many problems and his life was too hard for him. There is a big contradiction in He himself tried to present it as if everything had taken place impulsively, as if he had thought about it relatively spontaneously. What goes against this, however, is that he thought a lot about it and had planned a lot beforehand, which could be gleaned from the information on his computer. Hoping to lessen his sentence, Kroner's lawyers tried to convince the jury that the murder was not premeditated. They claimed it was an impulsive act and that Kroner had even had to muster the courage to do it. So there is a story that he had a few drinks, that he, he summoned up a bit of Dutch courage by, by having some alcohol beforehand. Um, I, I don't think he would have needed to do that because he hasn't got those emotions or those feelings there that he needs to numb. So, so I, I'm skeptical of the fact that, that he felt he had to have a drink to summon up the courage to do it. He didn't need to do that at all. Listening to it in retrospect, he lists all the trivial things that led him to take that step. He explained in court, for example, that his wife once burned food in the kitchen, and that had really annoyed him, because he had to air the house for two days. And that was a sign that she wasn't concentrating, that maybe she was also searching for someone new, and that she no longer took their relationship seriously. He also described another example, where shortly before the murder, his car also broke down. The alternator had broken, and that had been so awful for him that he fell into a deep hole again, and he more or less made the decision then that it must end now, and he has to kill Grace. Kroner even tried to show remorse for his actions in a letter written after the trial. All the horrible things I did afterwards I could only do under the continuing influence of alcohol. Today, when I look back, I feel nauseated and I can't understand myself. Every action after the offence had only one purpose, to provide myself with enough time to commit suicide. What I did to her and to our families is the worst someone can do to another human being, especially in the case of a loved one. To this day, I can't comprehend how I could have suppressed my love for her before and during the act. For some, both Kroner's attempt at making himself a sympathetic villain and his apology are still bitter pills to swallow. Is it true what the defendant tells us here? Yes, he is legally allowed to lie. He is allowed to, in a purely legal way, tell us the greatest fairy tales. And one always asks oneself, is this really the defendant or is he telling us a story? I did have the impression that he tried, in his way, to answer the questions openly and honestly. Although for me, there was a feeling that he was trying to make everything sound nicer. In hindsight, he describes it as being so bad that it was almost unbearable for him. So you hear in the plot again his self-pity, which is probably shaping him. I think when we look at Kroner's claims that he's felt suicidal throughout his life, we've got to take a step back and say, well, what effect does that have on us when we hear somebody say to us that they feel suicidal? It helps us kind of empathise with them. It makes us feel sympathy for them, and, and we see them as the victim. So I think he's aware of the effect that this narrative will have when he presents it to other people. To combat his claims, the prosecution hired a psychiatrist to assess Kroner, and the psychiatrist's findings did not support Kroner's own assessment of himself. He was very self-centered. He was scared of losing Grace, 
And this anxiety, this fear of losing grace, probably then led him to become so aggressive and to turn to these murderous thoughts. The report also came to the conclusion that he is the type of person that avoided dealing with problems when they arose. And he is also probably very introverted. As a result, the report came to the conclusion that he is actually, a, so to speak, a normal person. That he also doesn't have any illness, in particular, that he does not have any mental illness. It was crystal clear to the jury that driven by his narcissistic urges, Kroner had killed his wife and carefully disposed of her body. On November 17, 2016, Horst Kroner was found guilty of the murder of his wife, 37-year-old Grace. Rather than the mandatory 15 years before being considered for parole, Kroner was sentenced to serve a minimum of 20 years. The severity of the guilt prompted the judge in Kroner's case to say there has to be a minimum sentence of at least 20 years before he can be considered for release. He showed relatively little emotion during the whole process. He faltered once and burst into tears a bit. But he took the verdict quite well. In a letter written after his conviction, Kroner reiterated the plea he had made to the jury, a final attempt to save his image. I allowed family, work and financial problems, as well as several miscalculations, to influence me to such an extent that I completely blocked out everything that was good in my life. I increasingly got myself into a kind of state of desperation. This situation became so extreme that I was convinced my life had no meaning anymore. I wanted to die. In the end, it was the only thing I could think of. I believed to the very last moment that I would not be able to do such a dreadful thing. The idea she could feel something was awful. I didn't want her to feel anything, and for this reason, I did it while she was asleep. I never hated her. We hadn't argued on that day. It was only sheer desperation that made me commit this offense. Kroner also reportedly apologized to Grace's sisters after his sentencing. The women had traveled all the way from the Philippines to Germany to attend the trial, hoping to see their sister's killer brought to justice. I'm delighted if Kroner's apparent remorse helped Grace's family deal with her killing. And I'm delighted that they were able to take her ashes with them back to the Philippines from Germany. I have just never believed that uh, Kroner had the slightest remorse. And I believed he was simply putting on appearances, or rather keeping up appearances, um, as a respectable German citizen. I think it was an absolute charade from beginning to end. Here's somebody who is very cold, who is very calculating, who doesn't have genuine feelings of love or warmth or respect for his wife. She's useful to him at one point in time, and then she ceases being useful to him, so he's going to absolutely obliterate her. For me, it was a type of crime that I'd never experienced before. And for me, what is still until today incomprehensible is this really terrible cruelty, this brutality on the one hand, and this cold, methodical procedure on the other hand. 
We've got somebody who carried out a cold and a calculated and a planned murder, uh, and somebody who tried to, to get away with it. So th there are absolutely no redeeming qualities of this individual whatsoever. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A very special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, we would love a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. In March 1980, a 14-year-old boy from California was reunited with his family after having been kidnapped seven years earlier by a pedophile. But the homecoming was not celebrated by everyone. The 14-year-old's older brother claimed he immediately felt pushed aside. His brother's ordeal, paired with the apparent abuse he suffered as a child, would eventually lead him to become a serial killer. When he's seven, he starts to have these fantasies of, of capturing and, and killing women. He said he couldn't contain himself, that there was no way that he could stop this urge to kill. 